Emory University's Goizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. And in an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Goizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Goizueta Business School and your host. Today I'll be joined by Suhas Sridharan. Business and politics, two huge institutions that are inseparably intertwined. As we enter an emotionally charged election year, businesses and individuals are speculating how political outcomes will impact their lives and the success of their organizations. Suhas joins to discuss how you can navigate political systems to achieve the mission of your organization. She'll talk about actions you can take to influence policymaking and political outcomes and how the regulatory landscape can make or break your business. We'll also delve into the role that activists, interest groups, and corporate social responsibility play in shaping your success. Sue Haas is an associate professor in accounting at Emory University's Goizueta Business School. Prior to this, she earned her PhD in business administration from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Her expertise has been featured in leading publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and Financial Times. Welcome, Sue Haas. Thank you so much for having me. So you've been at Goizueta now for close to 10 years, And a couple of years back, you launched a class called Corporate Political Strategy. What made you interested in this topic, and why is it important for future business leaders to know more about it? Well, the class was a real passion project for me because prior to teaching it, I had been working on research on how companies manage political risks for several years. We live in a much more polarized political world today than we did five or ten years ago. And that polarization introduces a whole range of new risks. And so I started to do research in that space. And as I was doing research, it became really clear to me that this is something that our students needed to know, too. And when we think about kind of the traditional business curriculum, I think we do an awesome job teaching the foundations of accounting and finance, marketing. Um, But there's a lot of opportunity in this more interdisciplinary type of scholarship Mm -hmm. for us to help educate business leaders who are going to be existing in not just the narrowly defined business world, but, you know, the broader society. So you mentioned we're at a pretty pivotal time in our history. Um, We've got a super emotionally charged election happening right now. There's lots of uncertainty ahead. But when it comes to corporate strategy, there are some ways that you can navigate the uncertainty and really get a little bit more targeted. Uh, And I know for businesses, not all politicians are created equal. So how can organizations really identify those politicians that are pivotal to their cause? Yeah, this is a really great question, especially for businesses that are sort of just embarking, embarking on 
being politically active, it can feel, I think, sort of overwhelming to think about all of these different arenas and avenues for engaging politically. Um, the good news is that to some extent, thinking about what politicians are likely to be pivotal is pretty intuitive because it's the politicians that are getting all of the attention in the popular press, right? So if you think about the Senate, um, Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin most recently, right, those are your pivotal senators. And there are analogous Congress people in Congress who basically sit at sort of the center of the ideological spectrum. What's really exciting about that idea, um, or really from a research perspective right now, is that our ability to sort of measure and understand political ideology is becoming a lot more data-driven. Um, so we now have tools that help us quantitatively estimate political ideologies, not just at a party level, but at an individual politician level and on a wide range of different political issues, which means that we can actually measure how pivotal each policymaker is likely to be on a whole variety of different topics. So there are these two political scientists, Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal, who did a lot of really important work analyzing roll call voting data to develop a score that they publish, actually. Anyone can access it now. It's on the web um, at voteview.com. And you can look up the estimated ideology for every member of Congress and every senator um, and see kind of how they differ on social issues as well as on economic issues and basically use that to kind of triangulate who's likely to be pivotal on the issues that matter for your business. That's so interesting. So I imagine you could look at uh, politicians who might be super aligned with your cause to be advocates, but then also look at ones who may be on the fence and try to kind of push them over to your side. There are definitely a range of strategies that companies can think about employing when they decide to engage in lobbying activity. And two are the ones that you articulated. So do you reach out to the most pivotal legislators and try and convince the ones um, that maybe don't already align with you to shift their perspective? Or alternatively, you can engage in something known as sequential lobbying. And in a sequential lobbying strategy, you would actually spend most of your efforts lobbying the politicians who you already believe are really aligned with your cause. And then the sequential nature of it comes from then those politicians using their networks and their relationships to potentially influence other policymakers, um, essentially, to support your case. And do you think both are valid, or is there a way that you suggest people spend more of their time? Um, it depends, right? I think that there are settings in which both can be effective. Um, it A lot of it depends on sort of the salience of the topic mm -hmm. that is at hand. So now that we have a little bit of a better idea of who may drive impact, what sort of actions can businesses take to influence politicians and political outcomes? I know you mentioned lobbying, um, so we could talk a little bit more about that, but I know there's other strategies as well. I'll start with sort of the elephant in the room, right? Campaign finance. That's a huge tool um, for better or for worse. People, I think, think about campaign finance in all different sorts of ways. 
Um, but like it or not, Citizens United was this landmark Supreme Court case, and it really solidified the ability of corporations to engage financially in the electoral process. And so um, now we live in the United States in a world where companies are allowed to make contributions to candidates, not directly, right? Companies cannot directly contribute to politicians or to their electoral campaigns, but what they are allowed to do are set up political action committees or PACs. And these are organizations that raise or spend money for campaigns that either support or oppose political candidates or even specific pieces of legislation. They have limitations on them in terms of the amount of contributions that they are allowed to make, as well as on the amount of contributions that they are allowed to receive. Um, And it's important to understand both of those because I think it sort of speaks to how much influence a PAC can really have on a candidate as well as how much influence can a corporation have through their PAC. If a, a company can decide to sponsor a PAC, but a corporate-sponsored PAC is limited in terms of who they can fundraise from. So corporate-sponsored PACs really are allowed to receive contributions from employees or family members of employees to the company. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty restrictive pool of individuals that can make these contributions. And then those contributions essentially go into an account that the PAC, which is typically guided by the CFO Um, or a kind of similar level executive of the company, those funds are guided towards specific candidates or specific initiatives that the company believes are favorable to whatever the company's goals are. So let me make sure I understand it correctly. Uh, A corporation isn't giving its own money. Correct. It it kind of rallies its employees and their families to say, we'd like to contribute, but then it's the under the corporation's discretion, how that money is used. Exactly. And so the idea here is really that the stakeholders of the company have a vested interest in the company being allowed to influence the political environment um, in some way. And so the stakeholders have this opportunity to direct their own funds to the corporation. But I think a common misconception is that, you know, Microsoft generates a billion dollars in revenue and then they can use that revenue towards uh, political campaigns. And that is not the case. Interesting. What about um, things like board appointments? Do you think those are valuable? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So that's another very interesting sort of political strategy. Um, It's a little bit more permanent and I think in some sense is harder to implement just because there are only so many former politicians. But your question really alludes to a broader strategy of something known as a revolving door, right? Which is um, the idea that it benefits corporations to bring in employees or directors of the board who have political experience, which can then help them with several different um Goals. One is just to learn more about the political system as it currently exists, um, which is something that I think a lot of businesses, frankly, struggle with to kind of understand how do political systems actually work um, and what are the channels through which a political system could potentially impact our business. 
another sort of value proposition related to this kind of revolving door idea relates to wanting to potentially leverage the relationships that those former political employees have with colleagues who have chosen to remain in the political arena. So then the idea would be you hire somebody, I'll I'll use an example from the world of financial reporting. Um, You hire someone that used to work at the SEC to help you with your in-house financial reporting systems. And by hiring someone with that SEC experience, they can help sort of ensure by their ongoing communications with existing um, SEC regulators that your company would be less susceptible to potential regulatory scrutiny or to um, changes in policies that the SEC is likely to enact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what about other actions? Well, the thing that I um, often emphasize in my course is that all of these different tools, whether it's hiring people with political experience, certainly when we think about lobbying, when we think about um, campaign contributions, these are often thought about as happening at the firm level. But it's very perhaps even more common to see these types of activities take place at the industry level or at a trade association level. Um, And that can be a very powerful tool for businesses to use when they're trying to glean information about policy changes as well as trying to influence future developments in policy. And typically it involves some degree of cooperation with peers um, between customers and suppliers, but there's often a very strong alignment of interests um, that can make those types of coalitions much more effective than a company kind of going out on its own. Yeah. Power and numbers for sure. We're going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. When it comes to entrepreneurs, many put a heavy emphasis on product ideas and innovation, and they often forget about the regulatory environment in which they have to operate. And you teach your students this is a mistake. Can you talk a little bit more about that and just kind of the power of that regulatory environment? So at any point in time, companies are faced with a wide variety of different issues, political issues that they that may present potential risks to their business. And each of those issues um, is likely to be at a slightly different stage in the issue life cycle. So you have issues that are, are very sort of nascent. They're just starting to emerge and capture the minds of the public. Um, and the set of strategies that are going to be most effective in that stage of the issue life cycle um, tend to n- not necessarily involve policymakers or regulators at all. They tend to be more related to um, public awareness, to self-regulation, um, because they are small enough that they have not yet become important for a policymaker to consider. Right, And some of this also gets back to thinking about what policymakers care about, but a lot of that's driven by their stated kind of purpose, which is to represent the people that elected them, Mm -hmm. right? So as issues sort of develop and gain steam and become more um, salient to a wide section of the general public, you start to see them also become important to policymakers, to um, people who um, may be interested in 
writing a, a law to change the way that a company or a, a business industry operates. At this point in the issue life cycle, you would see a lot of companies um, try and lobby really actively around a particular bill. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, in the Obama administration, there was a piece of legislation designed to um, put in place a set of regulations that would help promote clean air, clean energy production. Um, and not surprisingly, there was a set, a subset of companies in the utility sector that were really concerned about how exactly that legislation was going to be structured. Now, the Obama administration in 20, 2008 to 2016, right, that's not the beginning of society caring about clean energy, um, but that sort of gives you an example of how an issue emerges maybe 30, 40 years before that, mm -hmm. but then we get to a place where there's enough momentum that it becomes legislatively important. Mm -hmm. And then you can see a lot of lobbying and um, also campaign finance dollars being directed um, towards the issue. And after you get past sort of the legislative phase, let's say legislation is enacted, right, you enter a new sort of steady state of political activity, which is the regulatory phase, the administrative um, or regulatory phase. And that's where I think that especially young companies often fail to sort of anticipate um, the potential for there to be uh, political costs mm -hmm. to operating their business. And, you know, there are some industries where the regulatory framework is, is sort of immediately obvious. Like you think about um, pharmaceutical companies, right? Anything that they do is subject to a lot of regulatory scrutiny. They need to get approvals for every drug that they do. They need to get approvals even for running experiments to um, test those drugs. And so there are some industries, not surprisingly, the Pharmaceutical Trade Association, Pharma, they have, operate one of the largest PACs um, in the country. So con there are, um, there's a lot of industry variation in terms of how much awareness there is of the need for involvement in the regulatory landscape. Um, but the difference between kind of legislative action and regulatory action is that regulatory action can be perpetual, right? Like once a regulatory agency exists to monitor your industry, um, it often exists in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. So then there's sort of an ongoing need to monitor and know like what policies is this regulator putting into place? How actively are they enforcing it? Um, what is the scope of their inquiry? And so the, the tools, you know, then change. Yeah. And I know you talked about certain industries like pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. You know a little bit more of what to expect because it's been regulated so yeah. long. One of the things you teach your students about, too, is like disruptors, yes. such as Uber. Yes. Um, so can, yeah. you, can you talk a little bit about some of what Uber has gone through and the obstacles they've had to overcome? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a great point. So Uber um, really came into their industry with a model of sort of acting first and apologizing later, right? Um and I think that that rubbed a lot of policymakers the wrong way. We talk in class about how effective of a strategy that may be. And it really comes down to a question of timing. You know, so Uber, Uber started out with a pretty narrowly defined product. They had this black car luxury 
car service. Um, and they rolled it out in a select set of markets, notably San Francisco, New York City. Um, and it was quite successful in those markets, right? But in doing so, they saw the opportunity to expand to a much broader class of transportation services, um, which we now all know as UberX, right, where it's not a black car. It's more everyday people and everyday cars driving um, passengers around. And when they rolled out that product, they faced a number of challenges in different markets because they drew the ire of an industry that had previously enjoyed a fair amount of market power, namely the taxicab industries. And so several things that sort of emerged from studying that historical journey. One is, um, you know, when you enter a new industry, um, especially one like taxis that has sort of been fairly entrenched, right? Um, it can be helpful to kind of assess the nature of the entrenchment. And in the case of the taxi cab industry, a lot of the entrenchment came from longstanding political relationships, strong um, unions that helped ensure that the existing taxi cab providers um, were receiving fair compensation, that passengers were being um, transported safely. Mm -hmm. And so there were a set of, I think, really legitimate reasons why there was regulation over this industry, right? Uber came in with a new business model that lowered costs, but part of the way in which they lowered those costs was by eliminating a lot of the protections that the taxicab industry had evolved to offer its passengers. Mm -hmm. So the challenge for Uber was to demonstrate to passengers and also to policymakers that as this new business model could actually work, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, if UberX had been ridden with tales of passengers being treated unsafely, um, I think it would have been pretty difficult to enact the apologize later part of the um, strategy. As it turns out, UberX was safe, right? And it did work okay. Um, but it's still Uber, um, and the case that I teach in class specifically relates to Washington, D.C., right? In Washington, D.C., Uber faced a really sort of direct headwind in the form of a proposed policy that would have Put, impose a minimum fare that the company would have to charge. And that minimum fare would essentially have put it on more of an equal um, cost basis with taxi services, which was completely um, counter to their goal of trying to compete on price mm -hmm. with taxis. So, you know, Uber's approach was to ignore the policy and to operate and try and build a base of customer support that then made the issue one that Uber was not having to fight on its own behalf, but one that its customers were essentially fighting for it. Um, but again, that only works to the extent that you can successfully drum up enough customer support mm -hmm. um, that they care about your product. Mm -hmm. So it requires having a good product, right? Making sure that the, the 
existing regulatory restrictions can actually be relaxed if it's if you want them to be relaxed without sacrificing product quality mm -hmm. um and then doing so fast enough that you build customer support before the regulator decides to shut down your operations <laughs> that's a lot of boxes to tick yeah <laughs> yeah so do you think they've been successful um i have to say yes i mean i the initial leadership the founder ceo of uber i think um you know was not particularly effective for the long term but if we look at the company and we look at um its ability to sort of expand and uh, pr roll out uber x um just as a single example um we have to say yes okay so let's talk a little bit about corporate political strategy um and whether people should be thinking globally or locally, um, and even getting into evaluating opportunities and hurdles with things like emerging markets. So my class is corporate political strategy. It's not um, exclusively focused on the United States, but it is definitely um, heavily skewed towards the United States. And some of that is just home bias. We're here. And so it's easy to to talk about what's happening at home. Um, but part of that is also because what we're really trying to do in the class is develop a set of tools and frameworks for thinking about things like issue identification, assessing the issue life cycle, um, identifying those pivotal policymakers, um, figuring out how to build a coalition. And all of those frameworks are completely adaptable, whether you're talking about the United States or talking about another developed economy in the world or an emerging market. So. Um, to that extent, uh, what you want to do is exactly the same, no matter where you're talking about going. Mm -hmm. What is unique and what I think is really important for companies to think about when they move from one market to another is thinking about the specific culture that they are stepping into. And this is something that it applies to how they market the product. It applies to how they hire and retain employees in the market. And so it applies to their political strategy as well. Because at the end of the day, politics involves people. And so um, it is as important in that conversation to think about people as it is, um, as it is in any of the other dimensions. Can you talk a little bit about the journey of Facebook and, yeah. and its backlash that it encountered as it sought to expand in places like China and India? Yeah, well, I'll talk about India because that's a little bit closer to home for me and because it's just a really fascinating example. So um, India is a developing economy. Um, it's now, I believe, the largest country in the world. And it's a country where, as recently as 2014, a lot of the population did not have access to the internet. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that was, you know, I think a human rights issue that a lot of people were interested in trying to resolve. But it was also a business obstacle for a company like Facebook, right? Because Facebook is, at the end of the day, a website. So if people don't have access to the internet, they have no way of accessing Facebook and of using Facebook's myriad services. Mm -hmm. So in um, the early to mid aughts, uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg in particular, uh, was contemplating how, how should we um, 
how should we think about entering the Indian market? So it kind of took the problem head on and said, well, if we want to get people to use Facebook, we first need to get them access to the internet. So in order to do that, it established a new program called internet.org. So internet.org was a joint venture between Facebook and local telecom telecommunications companies in a variety of different markets. And the idea was um, the phone, Facebook convinced phone companies to foot the bill for providing widespread mobile internet access to people without it. And because it's costly to provide this, in order to make it more cost effective, Facebook would help curate a limited set of websites that would be accessible for free. And not surprisingly, in that limited set of websites that will be accessible for free, Facebook was one of the websites, mm-hmm. right? So on one hand, the idea of bringing internet access to a wide variety of people is hugely philanthropic, mm-hmm. right? There's, I think, a lot of value in doing that. But of course, there is also, I think, a, very set, a set of very legitimate concerns around net neutrality and not having a censored version of the internet. Like the value in the internet is in the idea of free expression of ideas. And so um, to the extent that Facebook was potentially limiting people's ability to access a wide variety of information, it was sort of raised some alarm bells for really coalition of sort of nonprofit leaders in India. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges for Facebook in how it chose to approach this rollout of internet.org is that it did not attempt to include a wide variety of stakeholders in the decision-making process at an early stage. It sort of adopted an approach of, we know what is best for this population, so let us make this decision and we'll coordinate the rollout of this and we'll decide what the websites are and everyone will be super happy because we are bringing them the internet, (laughs) right? Instead of acknowledging the possibility that maybe this society would like more input. And and in particular, I think the context of India as a country formerly colonized by a Western country, right, would be a little bit skeptical to another Western authority coming in and saying that we know what's best for you. The coalition basically introduced a regulatory proposal that would have limited the ability of Facebook to roll out this Um, free internet uh, program. And instead of seeing that opposition as an opportunity to engage in more dialogue, Facebook sort of doubled down on the the program. Mm -hmm. So they put out a really aggressive marketing campaign. Um, They encouraged all of their users, actually 
harkening back to what I was talking about before with Uber, right? Your consumers who are happy with your product can be a very useful coalition for you in helping to advocate. But again, that only works if your consumers actually want the product that you're selling. And so in the case of Facebook in India, Facebook appealed to its existing customer base in India, and they said, we want to bring the internet to more people in India. Do you support our proposal? Um, but they made it very difficult. It kind of, it popped up on people's websites as like something that they couldn't exit out of until they said yes. And they also, they cross-promoted, like if we were Facebook friends and mm -hmm. I said yes, then you would see my acceptance and say like, oh, well, my friend said yes, so I should support this also. Except they did that without thinking about data quality. So people were seeing cross-promotions where it was like somebody's dead uncle still had a Facebook account and that, that dead uncle was supporting mm -hmm. this proposal. So it the rollout of this marketing strategy wound up feeling very heavy-handed and a little bit disingenuous. And um, so ultimately the the initiative failed. The regulatory authority said you're not allowed to curate the internet in this way. Um, and Facebook wound up withdrawing from the Indian market mm -hmm. entirely. Wow. After, I'm sure, a huge investment. Yeah. That's a fascinating story. Um, well, we've talked a lot about government and politicians um, and how we can get in an influence, but there's also a lot of external parties that are influencing organizations and corporations. So interest groups and activists can exert tremendous pressure too. Can you talk a little bit about the role that these groups play? Absolutely. Well, so if you remember what I was saying before about the issue life cycle, right? Um, activists are a really critical part of the early stages of an issue's life, right? They can sort of create an issue or certainly um, escalate an issue from being sort of simmering in the background to being really front and center. Um, and the example that I always like to give is the example of automobile safety. Mm -hmm. So if you think back to the 1960s, right? Cars didn't have seatbelts. Seatbelts were not a required feature in cars. There was some talk of like, maybe we should have safer cars. I don't know. Seatbelts may be safe. Um, but there's not a lot of momentum around this issue. And then a series of things happened. The first was that a congressman was actually involved in a car accident, um, which was very dangerous. And he, was, he and some of his family members were seriously injured in it. Um, but the second was that a young activist um, by the name of Ralph Nader wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, um, which really articulated the full range of consequences that Americans were exposing themselves to by driving in a car without a seatbelt. And this book just took off. It was like number one best-selling book. Everyone had read it. Everyone was talking about it. And so it really spurred um, Congress to create the National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration, mm -hmm. which one of their first acts was to mandate seatbelts in cars. But that regulatory agency still exists and now has 
mandated not only seatbelts, but airbags, rear view cameras, right? So like the ongoing development of cars now is all subject to the purview of this agency. But I bring that up as an example because absent Ralph Nader, famous activist, right? Absent that book and that um, effort to really push this issue into the limelight, I'm not sure that we would have seen the same legislative action. And we we talked a little bit about boycotts too. And I know before we we did the interview today, we were talking about a company called Kite Baby. Yes, yes. Um, so I'll give a little context because I'm I think probably some listeners don't know Kite Baby. Yeah. Um, but they're they're an organic baby apparel company. They recently saw a big backlash, and customers began to boycott their baby clothes after they told an employee with a baby that was in intensive care that she could not work remotely. So can you give a little more context on this um, and talk about the company's response and kind of what we can learn? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm very familiar with Kite Baby. I have two young boys. Um, They've both worn used Kite Baby products. And I think it's a really recent and excellent example of the power of a boycott. Um, Boycotts are a really interesting activist tool. Um, They are almost always consumer-driven, which is important to note because if you are not a consumer-facing business, you're less likely to be susceptible to boycott risk. Um, Sort of counterintuitively, you are also more susceptible to boycott risk when you have a stronger reputation because one of the main objectives of a boycott is to harm a company's reputation. If you already are a company without a strong reputation, then there's not as much to harm. But Kite Baby was a company that was extremely consumer-facing and that did have an excellent reputation, um, which made it really susceptible to boycott risk. And um, the boycott in this case, like you said, was prompted by its customers feeling um, outraged that the company was not providing adequate maternity leave to um, to an employee. And Kite Baby makes baby clothes, so their customers are all new parents. So the idea of parental leave is understandably incredibly salient to them. Um, and most of them probably um, work at companies where they're not getting adequate parental leave in their own jobs. So the idea of this company that they're spending a lot of money at, mm-hmm. right, to get these high-quality um, products for their children, that, that that some of that cost is not translating into appropriate parental leave, I think should have been anticipated, right, um, but is something that the company obviously didn't see coming. So the company's response was to apologize, but the first apology did not work because it was it was not sincere. It was and customers could sort of tell that it was not um, heartfelt. So the CEO had to release a second apology um, and make a commitment to really review all of its parental leave to try and come up with something um, better for all of its employees. Let's talk a l- go in a little bit of a different direction uh, and talk about corporate social responsibility. So it's definitely a major consideration for businesses. In fact, many consumers and employees demand it. 
So can you talk a little bit about CSR as a strategy for business? Yes, absolutely. And and it's actually maybe less of a segue than you may think from what we were talking about before, because both this issue of paid leave and CSR fall under the umbrella of what I think of as self-regulation, mm-hmm. um, more broadly into this umbrella of, of private politics, which is to say there's a lot of political risk and political forces that influence companies that are not politicians themselves, right? Mayors or presidents or um, Congress people, but but political forces nonetheless because they're driven by people. Um, so as I was saying before, in the case of parental leave, right, there's no law that's mandating the kite baby do this, but they're going to react to this activist pressure, this boycott, and they're going to self-regulate. They're going to change their parental leave to be more aligned with what this political force is telling them that they need to do. Um, CSR is another great example of that. There is very little by way of formal regulation around corporate social responsibility activities, but we see, I think, you know, 90% of S&P 500 companies now have some sort of CSR disclosure. They're all doing it to some degree because there is a market demand for it, right? What's really interesting about self-regulation, and this applies to parental leave, it applies to CSR. In fact, I think a lot of people would call parental leave an example of CSR, right? It's because it falls under the umbrella of sustainable labor practices. Um, but what's sort of interesting about all of all of these forms of self-regulation is that they are often viewed from a company's perspective as a way of of avoiding less favorable regulation, right? So your business is operating in a particular way and absent any external force, you'd probably just keep doing things the same way. Um, But there is this external force. There is this kind of emerging issue. There's some stakeholder that is concerned about how you're operating. And at that point, as a company, you have two paths. You can sort of do nothing and wait for a formal hammer to come down, right? Congress, the president says, you have to change your behavior. I'm, I'm writing a law to make you change your behavior. Or you can see this force coming and say, we're going to kind of shift and appease the stakeholder through our own actions so that that more formal regulatory intervention doesn't arise. Um, So what's your one big takeaway for business leaders right now who want to build a corporate political strategy but don't know where to start? Well, the first step in any political strategy is issue identification. Right. What are the topics that are emerging that your business needs to know about? Um, and there are several tools that companies can use for issue identification. Quite frankly, the media is a great place to start, right? Because to some extent, what the media is covering, what they're choosing to pay attention to is what your stakeholders are also go- more likely to be aware of. So the media is a, is a great resource for issue identification, but it is most useful if you read quite broadly instead of focusing on just one or two channels. Um, you know, if you're just starting out, there might be a big ask to say, like, go out and read 40 newspapers today. Um, so a simpler approach might just be to talk to your lobbyist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times when I say that, people say, well, well I don't have a lobbyist. Whether you know it or not, you have a lobbyist probably have like five lobbyists because 
we are all part of many different interest groups. Like, so everyone that works at Emory or is a stakeholder at Emory, a student, faculty, staff, we all have a lobbyist because Emory employs a team of lobbyists mm -hmm. that lobby for issues that matter to Emory, which consequently matter to all of us, mm -hmm. right? And then we also have lobbyists, um, for example, if you own or rent a home, right? Homeowners and renters have lobbyists that help discuss and craft policy that is favorable um, or that protects those groups. And so, um, you know, reaching out to those lobbying organizations is a straightforward way to kind of gauge what issues are emerging in those different spheres of identity. And from a company perspective, a, a very natural sort of lobbying group is your trade association, right? And so reaching out to those trade associations can also um, or just your business network, right? Your customers, your suppliers, um, to see what issues that they're working on. And companies have a lot of really valuable information to add, especially as we think about, you know, what is the economic impact of different policies that our city, our state, our country is considering, right? Companies are often best positioned to tell you, like, hey, if you change how batteries are produced then this is how it's going to affect our business right mm -hmm. if you change how you enforce this patent it's going to this is how it's going to affect our business so mm -hmm. um companies i think genuinely have an important role to play in sharing that information with us um but a lot of there's just so much happening at any one time right mm -hmm. it requires a little bit of intentionality to know what information to share and when that makes sense and what has your students' response been to the course? And have you heard from them, you know, learnings or any yeah. of them gone off into the workplace? They, well, so um, I actually have a former student who now um, actually does in-house political strategy work for Eli Lilly in Japan. It's like one of my proudest um, student stories. So I've kept in touch with him and he's told me a lot about, you know, just how interesting. And, and he's also an example of a kind of revolving door scenario because before he got his MBA, he worked for a pharmaceutical regulator in Japan and then um, he got his MBA and now he works for Eli Lilly. So he has kind of gone full circle. I love it. Love those full circle moments. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It was really, really interesting and I look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Sue Haas is an associate professor in accounting at Emory University's Goizueta Business School. She joined today to discuss how you can navigate political systems to achieve the mission of your organization. For more information about the Goizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.